You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. There have been eight anti-Semitic attacks in New York before the horrific knife attack at a Hanukkah party in Monza, New York on Saturday night. There was another anti-Semitic attack in New York on Monday. A woman apparently went on a slapping spree in Crown Heights, targeting Jewish women in a part of Brooklyn with a large Hasidic community, bringing the number of anti-Semitic attacks in the New York area over a single week to 10. These attacks came just a couple of weeks after a mass shooting at a kosher supermarket in Jersey City, which itself came a little more than a year after the terror attack at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, where 11 people were massacred and more were injured. In Iowa this week, a woman ran over a teenage girl with her car because the kid was a Mexican. After her arrest, during which she made a series of derogatory statements about Latinos, according to CNN, statements that doubtless could have been lifted from a Trump rally, police also wound up charging this woman with running down a 12-year-old black boy an hour before she ran over that 14-year-old Mexican girl. And in Wisconsin, the day after Christmas, a man attacked another man in a bar in front of that man's kids, beating him unconscious and then kicking him in the head after he passed out while making anti-Mexican slurs. And on Sunday, a man with a shotgun opened fire in a church in White Settlement, Texas. The church's volunteer armed security squad returned fire, killing the shooter, but not until after the shooter had killed two people. Gun nuts pointed to this as proof that our lax gun laws work. There were good guys with guns at the church. They took out the bad guy with the gun, the shooter, Sidestepping the question, however, of why churches in small towns in Texas might need armed security squads in the first place. Oh, and one of the dead people at the church, a member of that armed security squad. It's New Year's Eve. I wanted to open the show with a little uplift, a little optimism, a little encouragement, a little pep talk about the work we need to do in 2020 and the fun and the sex we can have while doing that work. But holy fuck, did the news this week ever bring me down? What Donald Trump has unleashed, the hatred and cruelty and terror he has legitimized, the hatred and cruelty he has legitimized, the terror he has unleashed is tearing this country apart. We don't need to just reject Trumpism, which is far too cute a synonym for fascism. We need to crush it at the ballot box this November, like we kind of did in November of 2018. And while the news this week was draining, it sure as fuck drained me. There is cause for a little hopey, changey optimism. They're saying that Texas might go blue in 2020. Dems could win the Texas House for the first time in decades. And it's not hope and change Dems who are saying that Texas might go blue. It's shitting in pants Republicans who are saying it. Right now, Democratic Senate candidates in swing states are outraising Republican candidates, and scores of Republican House members have announced their retirements. They're leaving Congress, not because they don't want to be politicians anymore, but because they believe they're going to lose. That is a good sign. Support for impeachment is up. Democratic candidates lead Trump in head-to-head polls. And there were reports earlier this fall about GOP fears of a total wipeout in 2020. The GOP's nightmare scenario, losing the House and the Senate and the White House, also known as the country's best-case scenario. But like Hillary Clinton's victory in 2016, we can't take it for granted. We have to do the work. We have to raise the money and register the voters, particularly in states where voter rolls are being purged right now. We have to fight the hate. We have to get people to the polls this November. 
Obama's victory in 2008 was by no means a foregone conclusion. And the joy that night, holy shit, it was overwhelming. After eight years of George W. Bush, we elected Barack fucking Obama. Imagine the joy that you will feel if after four years of Donald Trump, we elect anyone else. Take your pick. Defeating Trump won't put the country back together. It won't put the poison back in the bottle. It won't break the hold Fox News has on your grandparents. But it will be a start. And it will be a joyous night, an ecstatic one. Here's to making it happen in 2020. Here's to making 2020 and 2021 the happiest of new years. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as much show, no ads, guests, LV Anderson joins us to talk about herpes hysteria. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. I have a son who is not yet middle school age, but my wife and I are fairly certain he is gay, like 99.999%. And we want to make sure there's lots in his world that shows all different types of people expressing themselves in all different types of ways and living all different types of lives and loving all different types of people. But a lot of the movies and TV shows and books that, you know, feature prominently gay people and gay stories, you know, really aren't for tweens or prepubescent kids. Um, Some of it is too explicit. Some of it's just not going to be interesting to them. So I'm really hoping you can point us in the right direction and give us names of books, TV shows and movies that make sense. For example, he loved Love, Simon. He was riveted by Love, Simon, and he begged us to find him more content like Love, Simon. So that was perfectly appropriate. So if you and your listeners could help guide us, we would really be grateful. Well, I would definitely recommend the gay indie flick Weekend, the classic cruising, the works of Bruce LaBruce and Greg Araki. I am, of course, kidding. None of those are appropriate films for tweens. Some adults aren't appropriate for those films, if you know what I mean. Uh, So I'm just tossing this out there to the listeners. I'm sure there's a lot of YA literature out there that would be good for your son to get his hands on, but I don't know the names of any of it because there was no such thing really as YA literature when I was a kid, although there were books and novels for kids. It just wasn't YA identified. And I aged out of those things before they were more widely available. So tossing this out there to the parents of gay tweens, gay teens who have found the right movies, books, TV series to watch with your pre-gay or gay youngsters, please give us a call 206-302-2064 and share. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old cis queer woman living in a major Midwestern city. Um, I've been married for about eight years in a relationship for about 10 with a 30-year-old trans man. We have a five-year-old daughter together. We have a super great marriage, super great sex life. We both find that we have a better marriage overall, more, we feel more intimate, more connected, better communication, um, more patient with each other, just better overall when we are having a lot of sex and it's not either of us being shitty or pushy with the other. I wouldn't even say either one of us has an unusually high sex drive. We're both, you know, average to a little high, but the benefit to our marriage is huge and obvious to both of us. So we have lots of sex. 
the only way that this is a problem is here. When I was in my late teens, um, unfortunately, I had to do some sex work to survive. I totally support sex workers who are doing it because they want to do it. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Uh, my husband knows about it. We don't talk about it, but he is, you know, understanding and supportive. As a result of this, I have a really hard time with, like, appointment feeling sex. I don't want a problem with scheduled sex in theory, like, you know, both clearing the evening and knowing that we're intending to, at, at, you know, sometime in the evening, you know, making sure we're all showered and fresh and everything. I don't have any issue with that. But, you know, when it's the whole, all right, it's time, you know, we've got limited time. Come on, lay down. Let's do this thing. It gets me really in my head. Um, it puts me in a really bad headspace. Uh, definitely totally turns me off. And he is about to be starting a new job, which is super demanding overnight. So we're going to have to be super strategic with our time together and our time for sex. So how do I not have this mental come up every time you know, we have a chance to enjoy each other and have sex together and, you know, get that great benefit to our marriage. I'm worried about this coming up more when we have so much less time together. I'm surprised you didn't have to resort to scheduled sex or really begin to contemplate it in detail after you became parents. That's usually when people start thinking about or resorting to and ultimately, hopefully, reconciling themselves to and feeling positively about scheduled sex. Scheduled sex can be great sex, but scheduled sex for you because of your history with survival prostitution is traumatic. You don't like having an appointment. You don't like having a date and a time where you're expected to be sexual because that throws you back into a time in your life when you were traumatized by your circumstances, and that's understandable. So what I think you need to do is schedule a time to have a conversation with your husband about this issue, that scheduled sex makes you unhappy, nervous, throws you out of the moment, and sex for you isn't enjoyable when sex is scheduled. So you won't be scheduling sex. You will be scheduling time together without the expectation that there will be sex with the awareness that sex is good for you and good for your relationship, but no expectation that sex is going to happen when you make time with and for each other. And I think you can make that feel real for yourself by ensuring that a lot of your scheduled time or some of it, at least out of the gate, is scheduled time together when sex isn't possible, just so that you're proving to each other that it's time together that you value and it's time together that you're scheduling. So some of your scheduled time together away from the kid and in between work pressures is going out to the movies, is going out to do an activity that you like, is hanging out with friends, scenarios where you can't be sexual so there's no expectation, no pressure on you to be sexual. And then sometimes when it's just time together at home or time together at a place and a time where you might be sexual. And if your husband has demonstrated to you that it's time with you that he values and that's what you're scheduling, not necessarily sex with you that you're scheduling or only sex with you that he values, I think that will help make it possible for sex to happen for you organically and in a way that feels healthy and joyful some of the time that you're scheduling time together with your husband. Hi, Dan, 30-year-old cis male caller from the West Coast calling to get some advice me and my girlfriend of five years were supposed to go on a trip to Europe and I didn't end up going, it fell in a really busy time of work for me and there's some other family commitments and it just didn't work well for me to go. So she went on her own. So I thought, but it turns out another guy went with her. She didn't tell me about the other guy going. She didn't tell me when she got back. I only found out through some social media posts that he ended up going. So I'm pretty hurt. Um, 
I I don't know. I thought I was pretty GGD, but I feel like this was a pretty big lie, and um, I don't know what to do. I'm only calling you back because you're a Magnum subscriber. And uh, note to all other Magnum subscribers out there, I, I'm not going to do this ever again. So you can't just say Magnum subscriber and automatically get a call back. But I'm calling you back because you're a Magnum subscriber. Thank you for subscribing to the podcast. Of course, man. It's a great podcast. I love it. Uh, because uh, otherwise, there's really not much to your question unless there's extenuating circumstances here. Your girlfriend did something really deceptive uh, and, and betrayed you in a way that you aren't required to retroactively approve of to be GGG or to hold on to your GGG card. It's, you know, GGG would have been she wanted to do something fun in bed with you or she wanted to have this experience with somebody else and talked about it in advance with you and you okayed it or or participated in it and indulged her. But this is just cheating piece of shit behavior. And I think you should break up with her if you haven't already. Well, that's kind of how I feel. It's funny. We started talking about opening up our relationship right after we saw you down in Boston. Um, but then the trip was like two weeks later and we were like, we should talk about it after the trip. And then after the trip, I found out she went with this other guy. So I don't know if she was trying to preemptively get approval for it, but we had definitely tabled it as a, as a thing that was going to happen. Yeah. And she didn't mention that she was probably sounding you out about it because she was already planning to go on the trip with this guy. And if you had reacted more enthusiastically when she floated opening the relationship, maybe she would have risked being honest with you, but she was going to go with this guy with or without your approval. And I'm sorry. I think you should break the fuck up with her. I think you're right. I think you're totally right. Unless, unless there's something super awesome about her and you can forgive a betrayal of this scale and a deception yeah. of this scale. We've just been together for a long time, I guess. We've been together like five years. And mm-hmm. Do you live together? It's like a shitty way to end it. You scrambled your DNA We together? used to. We had just started no scrambling DNA. Okay. We had lived together for a while and then we just parted living together to try and like make the relationship maybe healthier if we weren't together all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's over. I think the, yeah, you know, in some cases right. there are relationships, there are people out there I know uh, who've decided that living together isn't right for them and they got separate apartments, sometimes separate apartments in the same building and that saved the relationship. But the problem with that is there's also people who like float that because they want to end things without a tremendous amount of conflict. And so they will present moving out as an idea not to end the relationship, but to save it when it's actually their first step out the, the door that they actually are ending the relationship. And I think the taking this other guy on the trip was the proof that that's what was going on here. Yeah, you're right. Dan. You're totally right. I'm so sorry. Okay. But sometimes I hate to be right. Now nah, you're always right. <laughs> <laughs> not always. Thank you for your call. And thank you for subscribing to the Magnum. Of course. Thank you so much for calling Dan. Bye. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at Rescues. I'm a 28-year-old hetero female living in the Northeast, and I have a little dilemma that I need a tiebreaker on. So I have this thing where when I'm having sex and I get kind of riled up, I tend to bite a little bit. Um, I come from a long line of biters, and you know my 94-year-old Nana still has all of her own teeth, so that's what I'm working with. And so I've been seeing this guy for a little while and a couple of weeks ago, I bit his lip uh, a little too hard and it drew like a, like a little bit of blood. It wasn't like, you know, flowing 
or, you know, there weren't pools of blood, but there was a little bit. And, you know, it is liposolin, but it's not like I impaled him or anything. And, you know, he was going around calling this fat lip and, you know, just whatever, basically being a baby about it. So my my biting privileges were put on pause and I, and I took them back the other night, um, you know, cautiously so. Uh, but we were, we were just like joking about it and, um, and, you know, and he seemed still like a little salty, um, or sensitive about what happened. And he was like, well, I wonder what uh, Dan Savage would tell you to do. Um, and because I've been listening to the show for a while, I was like, well, you know, this is what I think. And we, uh, we disagreed. So I thought that I would just go to the source for a judgment on biting, you know, Dan, am I biting too much, too hard? Like, what's the story here? You come from a long line of biters. You come from a long line of people who chewed food. You come from a long line of people with teeth. And this distinguishes you and sets you apart from the rest of humanity. How exactly the rest of us are gumming our food and don't have grandparents that had teeth? I bumped on that. That was the first thing in your call where I was like, what? And then you tend to bite a little bit, but you broke the skin and there was blood and he was a baby about it. I'm sorry. I am on team aggrieved boyfriend in this dispute. Biting and biting someone's lip and potentially giving them a fat lip or a bloody lip is not okay. You have to be in control of yourself during sexual activity and it's fine to be passionate. It's fine to feel a bit carried away, but not so carried away that you injure your partner. You have to maintain some control. Biting someone so hard you break the skin and breaking the skin on the lip and inside someone's mouth is very easy. Isn't okay. Just like dragging your fingernails across someone's back during a moment of passion so hard that you break the skin and leave claw marks all over the back isn't okay unless you're with someone who enjoys being bitten and those people are out there unless you're with someone who enjoys being scratched during sex to such an extent that they bleed and their skin breaks. Biting is really not something that people who don't enjoy that sensation get off on and it's just a self-serving rationalization for you to say you're from a long line of biters or you can't help it or your partner if they complain about it is being a baby and sensitive i'm sorry broken skin and a bloody lip is something that a person has a right to be sensitive about and annoyed about and angry about there's this fine line in sex where you want your partner and you want to feel like you're carried away but there has to be some part of your non-reptile brain that is regulating your actions, even when you are, for the most part, carried away and is still taking in your partner's feedback and anticipating whether something would be welcome or not based on what you know of your partner. And you know your partner doesn't like to be bit, so you may not ever bite him again. I don't think you should bite him at all, but you certainly shouldn't bite him again ever so intensely or so with such pressure and force that you draw blood and then call your favorite sex and relationship advice podcast host to ask if that was a problem and to say it wasn't a tremendous amount of blood and then to say it wasn't like you impaled him or anything invoking impaling for me then invoking vlad the impaler who was the inspiration for dracula are you trying to tell us something with the impaling reference is there something else your boyfriend needs to know about dating you are you one of those 
young adults who is impacted by Twilight to such an extent that you now have a vampire fetish, that's an awesome thing to have. And there are people out there who have vampire victim fetishes. And you could go find one of them and date that person who wants to be bit with that much force. But so long as you're dating this guy, you can never, ever bite him again. I don't think at all, but certainly not with that force or any force. Gum him. Hi, Dan. I was just calling because my housemate and I were in a pretty heated discussion about the prevalence of vampire fetishism. And we're wondering if you could weigh in, maybe give us some statistics on how prevalent of a thing this is. I'm saying top 10, top 25 at least, and he doesn't believe me. The Centers for Disease Control, National Institutes of Health, they don't keep a list of the most prevalent, most common sexual fantasies, kinks, fetish scenarios, unfortunately. So I can't tell you whether this one, Vampires, is in the top 25 because there's no official ranking out there of the most popular fetishes. You don't have to get into an argument like this with your bros, though. You guys are treating fetishes and kinks like it's sports, like there are stats attached to them and you can have an argument and you can win that argument. And this isn't an argument that you can win. You can only acknowledge that vampire fetishism, definitely a thing, a kink that some people have. Thank you, Twilight Vampire Diaries interview with a vampire, True Blood, everything else. And it's fascinating, of course, that some people have this kink and find a way to indulge themselves with consenting adults, unlike the previous caller. Find a way, please, to indulge yourself with a consenting adult, someone who wants to be bitten or bite. That's all you need to know. It's a thing. Some people learn to it. Some people do it. They do it with people who want it done to them. And there are no rankings. There are no stats. There is no kink and fetish Hall of Fame. Hey, Dan. Quick question. Can you get high from someone's cum by barebacking if the top is high on meth? Thanks. Can you tell me why you would be having sex, bareback or otherwise, with someone who was high on meth? Me, personally, I can't think of a good reason why you would be doing that in the first place. Hi, Dan. I know you like wedding questions, so here's one regarding a situation my husband and I aren't sure how to handle. We were married a few months back, and there was a particular couple who came, friends my husband made in college. So, and I need to put a disclaimer out there. I'm not trying to sound spoiled, nor do I have animosity. I just need to know, we just need to know, how to proceed with the situation. They didn't bring a gift. And we don't know what to do regarding a thank you note. We decided to send a couple days after the wedding a really thoughtfully worded text message to them. Within one that I want to stress was carefully crafted so as to make sure that any gift, be it an item or a check, didn't wind up in unintended hands. Wanted to make sure nobody at the venue kind of swiped it, you know, um, something of that nature. Um, At first, we weren't going to send this, but... We agreed if we had brought a gift to a wedding and it didn't make it to the couple, we would want to know so we can either stop the check or in the event it was stolen to have the host site or even the authorities look into it. They responded and it was, well, elusive, I guess you can say. They didn't really have an answer like, oh, we'll mail it, whatnot, um, something to that effect. Like I said, these are friends of my husband from college. I see them about once a season and they're part of a larger circle of friends that also contain some of my husband's best friends. So both of these people earn good livings, 
My husband has long suspected they might be having issues with money, though they themselves haven't been forthright about it. They also don't seem like the type to, to be like anti-gay marriage. Like they came to the wedding. Honestly, none of that has any bearing on my question. I guess I just mentioned it to only to try and make, make sense of it all. So then what do we do? A lack of a thank you card seems cold and maybe isn't the message we want to send, particularly if they're having a rough time. Also, on the other hand, we also don't want to call attention to the fact that we didn't get anything and, you know, run the risk of making them feel bad that way. Uh, they at least came for the experience and went to the length of being there. Do we thank them for that? Do we not send one? Um, are we being too nice? What do we do? You say you don't want to be awful or you want to be nice. Well, you've already failed. You've already contacted this couple to ask them if maybe there was a gift and they said something ambiguous to you in response. You also then say that you have heard or might have some reason to think that they're having financial difficulties right now and they haven't been forthright about what are they supposed to do? Fill out a financial disclosure form before they come to your wedding and let you know before they eat the chicken or the salmon or the prime rib or whatever it was you served that there would be no gift, that their presence was the only present that they could afford to give you at your wedding? Dude, dudes, both of you, back the fuck off. Stop keeping track of who did or didn't give you a gift at your wedding. If you are aware of the gifts that came in, mention the gifts and the thank you notes to the people who came through with gifts. If this is the only couple at your wedding, the only attendees who didn't come through with a gift, let it go. Maybe it got lost. Maybe it fell behind the wall. Maybe somebody made, maybe they brought you, even though you have a kind of tenuous connection with them and they don't sound like terribly close friends. Maybe they brought you the most awesome present of, maybe they got you a BMW and one of the cater waiters stole it. Even if that's the case, calling someone who is at your wedding to say, hey, we noticed you didn't give us a gift is so crude and tactless that you just have to err on the side of not getting the BMW or the car thief who stole the BMW from your wedding gets away with it. Send them a thank you note. Still, that just says it was wonderful to have you there on our day. Period. The end. And you've already called them and they didn't come through with an answer, which means they didn't get you anything. And now things are just so awkward because you called. And now you've called me and I'm kicking the shit out of you on my podcast because this is just not okay and not what your wedding was about, was it? It wasn't about how big a pile of loot you guys could scrounge up. And guests at your wedding, really, you know, a, a gift is nice. A gift is thoughtful. I think a gift is expected, but it's not mandatory. And sometimes we have to be understanding that people may be in circumstances financially, particularly now in this economy where incomes have been flat for 40 fucking years and people are struggling and the rent is too damn high that there may be some people at your wedding who are barely keeping it together and, and wanted to be there, wanted to love and support you, wanted to see their friends, but just couldn't cough up a blender or a BMW and the gracious fucking thing to do in that circumstance is to keep your mouth shut, not call them up and harass them for a blender or a BMW or anything else. You owe them a thank you note. And the thank you note is kind of a secret apology that you're going to make them. Send them the thank you note. Be gracious. 
Hi, Dan and Nancy and everybody. I am calling. Um, I have a 13-year-old son, and this morning he I got a notification on my phone that he used something called handoff. And unfortunately, because our um, phones are all linked, uh, his, the porn site that he was sending from his computer to his phone um, went to me <laughs> as well. And so, um, you know, it's fine. I'm not surprised at all that a 13-year-old boy would be looking at porn. And I I don't intend to, I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but I, I want to know that he shouldn't use send-off unless we can figure out how to, or handoff, I mean, unless he could, we can figure out how to, how about not go to my phone? Because I don't know, I don't want to know when he's looking at porn or anything like that or the specific pages or anything. It was just a really vanilla thing um, that he was looking at. But So I know I need to say something to him because I don't want that to, I don't want to become a part of whatever porn watching he has, he does. Um, and I also, we have a really great relationship and we've been able to talk about dating and sex and things like that um, really well at this age. And I don't want to embarrass him so badly that he is afraid to say anything or talk to me or that this somehow drives a wedge into the whole thing. So I'm just debating. I keep thinking, like, should I send him a text like, hey, bud, don't use hand, hand off? Or will that be so embarrassing? Or should I say something to him in person so he can see how I think it's, you know, embarrassing but kind of funny also? And that way maybe it won't make it a big deal or I don't know. I mean, I, I just want to tell him. I don't want to know when you're looking at porn, so please don't use handoff anymore unless we can figure out how to disconnect our phones from each other. I guess the overall message I have for kids about porn is that, you know, it's fine to watch porn, but remember that it's a performance. Remember that this isn't how real people typically have sex, and I just don't want to shame him, and I don't want to mess this up. That's my biggest fear is just that he'll be so embarrassed that he'll hide in his room for the next five years or something like that. It's going to be embarrassing. He's going to be a little humiliated, but this is a terrific opportunity for you to have a conversation with your 13-year-old son about pornography, emphasizing the points that you emphasize, that this is performance. It's the kabuki theater of sex. It's not the way real people have sex. Telling him that in pornography, there were negotiations with the performers about what would happen that then they didn't show. That These people had conversations about what they were okay with, what they were consenting to, what they enjoyed before the camera started rolling. And in adult sexual relationships, those negotiations before the sex starts and those negotiations sometimes breaking out during sex by the soliciting of ongoing active enthusiastic consent, that's a part of sex that you're not going to see in porn. And it's a hugely important part, if not the most important part of sex. You need to have those conversations with him. This gives you an opportunity to have the conversation. And yeah, there's no way to avoid that he's going to be embarrassed and mortified. It's an advantage that it's not gay porn. You don't have to have a conversation with him about sexual orientation that he may not be ready to have. And it's not some crazy fetish porn that he would be doubly mortified about his mother finding and then having that window into his erotic imagination. It's just some vanilla fucking porn. And yeah, he's going to be embarrassed, but you need to have this conversation with him. Something I think that we should say to our sons when we have that conversation with them about pornography is there's a lot of anger in porn, a lot of misogyny in porn made for angry men who want to have access to and sex with these women, want the attention of these women who aren't going to ever pay them any attention. And so there's some part of that audience that wants to see those women suffer and wants to see those women punished. And you should tell your son that he should be on the lookout for that and not succumb to it. That that anger that is present in a lot of pornography is insidious. 
not just that porn is going to give him a false impression of how sex actually works and leaves out the negotiations or that porn might give him a false impression of other people's sort of default interests. Not all women are into facials. Not all women are into anal sex. Not all women are into X, Y, or Z, just as not all men are. You know, sometimes we leave out of this conversation about porn and expectations that boys can feel pressured to enjoy or do things or have anxiety about what might be expected of them because what they're seeing in porn isn't who they are or what they're interested in or what they want from sex either. But you really need to have that conversation. You really need to tag that base too about the anger and rage that is in really so much pornography. And I'm not talking about BDSM porn. I'm not talking about consensual power play porn. I'm talking about the rage and anger. You know it when you see it. It's my definition of pornography. You know it when you see it. You know what I mean when you see it in pornography. And you have to get in there and put a little distance between your son's eyes and that pornography. In a way, you can create a little bit of immunity for him where he may be exposed. He'll definitely be exposed to that kind of porn, but hopefully he won't succumb to it. He'll be a critical viewer of it and not a credulous viewer of it. Hey Dan, 30-something heteroflexible woman living in Europe calling for some advice. I went to a party with a friend last night and was having a pretty fun time. We drank and danced, met some people, pretty normal party, except when it wasn't anymore. The people who latched onto me were pretty aggressive. One kept coming up to me, begging to hang out on Thursday, and I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. Exchanged info. This other guy, I think they were friends, were chatting, laughing, and dancing. We were all in a big group. Um, I'm not sure exactly when it happened, but if my memory serves me correctly, he picked me up and carried me down the hall, shoved me against a wall, and forced his mouth against mine. I don't remember if I shoved him off or what, but it didn't last long, and I was very confused and didn't speak to him after. and decided it was time to leave, and my friend basically had to tell off these men for me. They would have followed me out had my friend basically not been my bodyguard. Today, I woke up feeling very angry and violated, more so than when it happened. They both found me on social media, and the guy who assaulted me messaged me saying some bullshit like, sorry if I was being pretentious last night, and I'm in the process of drafting up a message that will explain to him how inappropriate he behaved and violated me in hopes another woman doesn't have to experience the same shit from this idiot. My dilemma is that my boyfriend has been out of the country for about a month now and will be back in a couple weeks. He's been at the brim of stress. He lost his passport and has had a lot of issues getting a new one and general work stress and being trapped in a foreign country. I'm wondering how or if I tell him I was sexually assaulted. I don't want him to worry unnecessarily and be concerned for my safety every time I go out. I'm in a new country and want to continue going out with friends and don't want to have to have him have this in the back of his mind if I'm going out to a party. At the same time, I think I would want to know my partner was sexually assaulted, but it'd worry the shit out of me. If I don't tell him, I have a huge black bruise on my side from him shoving me against the wall that, like, it might still be there when he's back. And then what, I have to lie? I don't want to be dishonest and I don't want him to worry. What do I do? What would you do if you were in my situation? Now is not the time to worry about your partner. Now is the time to worry about yourself and to take care of yourself. And if you need to open up to your partner about what was done to you about this sexual assault, which sounds pretty traumatic, being thrown against a wall and forcibly kissed, thrown against a wall with such force, carried down a hallway and thrown against a wall with such force that you have a large black bruise on your body, you need his support. If you're worried because of the stress that he's been under lately, that he may react 
negatively or be angry at you for quote unquote putting yourself in a position where this can happen to you, then you deserve a better partner. Then he has sorting hatted himself out of your life. If he has a negative or controlling reaction to this, if he can't offer you his support and his compassion and understanding, that doesn't mean he can't express concern. You're probably concerned about going to parties in the future. I don't think him being worried for you is a bad sign. I would be worried for you if you were my partner. I would be more worried for us and what it said about our relationship if you hesitated to share something with me that, or my partner hesitated to share something with me that had happened to them, that had been done to them, that traumatized them for fear of my reaction. So tell him. He has a bad controlling reaction. Goodbye. He's not your partner anymore, doesn't deserve to be your partner. If he wants to have a constructive conversation with you about safety and listen to you, actually think out loud about how you can be safer in that exact same circumstance in the future at a party, that is fine. Hi, Dan. I'm trying to help a girlfriend cope who has just been diagnosed with herpes and it has her feeling embarrassed, dirty, tainted, and like she's never going to be able to date again because why would anyone want to risk contracting herpes in order to date her? She knows it's relatively harmless as far as STIs go, if it's properly medicated, but she also knows the stigma against it because it's incurable and considered quote unquote gross. There's only so much I can say to help her out given that I've never gone through it myself. And while I have pointed her towards your advice for how and when to disclose while dating, I think it would hit home the most for her and others in her position if it was coming from people who have already been where she is right now. Could you please throw this one out to your listeners who are either STI positive or have STI positive partners? What made them feel quote unquote normal again after the diagnosis? What tips do they have for how and when to disclose? How did it affect their dating and sex lives for better or worse? And for the partners, what was the best way for them to be disclosed to? All right. We're playing your question. We're tossing your question out there to folks who have sexually transmitted infections and partners. If you contracted your partner after you contracted your STI, how did that go? How did you navigate that? How did you stick that? Well, not dismount. How did you stick that mount? What I want to talk about and go on a deep dive about is the stigma. And joining me to talk about the stigma attached to herpes, L.V. Anderson, a journalist, currently the news editor of GIST, and recently wrote a fascinating long-form piece for Slate, How Herpes Became a Sexual Boogeyman. Hey there, L.V. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. And I can't tell you how... uh, how terrific I thought your piece for Slate was about this subject. Thank you so much. It was really mind-blowing, and everyone out there should read it. So I'm this nut who says regularly on my show, and people jump down my throat for this, that herpes is not a big deal. And it was interesting to read in your piece that the CDC doesn't recommend that people get screened for herpes because the stigma and the shame uh, versus the actual impact of having herpes is so out of proportion that there's really no health benefit to being tested for it. Can you run a, can you walk us through how herpes went from no big deal before the 1980s? You cite a Dear Abby column in 74 where she told a reader that we shouldn't even think of it as a venereal disease. And then six years later, Time, Newsweek, Rolling Stone, The New York Times, they're all describing herpes as a plague and a curse uh, and a crisis. And even Dear Abby pulled a 180. How did that happen? Yeah, it's a kind of stunning period in American media history. Um, And there's no single cause as to why the media suddenly began blowing up herpes as being 
um, this sexual boogeyman, as the you know title of the article puts it. Um, but I think it really boils down to um, ambivalence and discomfort with sexuality, the way so many moral panics and stigmas um, do. Um, the, I, it, I'll say it like as a um, as a matter of um, I guess just like medical history in 1967, that was the first time that researchers distinguished between herpes one and herpes two, um, which are the two different types. They're basically indistinguishable if you um, like from a, a patient's perspective, like you, they're basically like cold sores and they can appear either on your mouth or on your genitals. And we people talked about herpes one as oral herpes and two as genital herpes, but you can get either in either location. That's really... Exactly. And that's still something that's like not super well understood, I think. There's this real like kind of dichotomy of like good herpes, bad herpes, which is really not supported by the way that these infections actually occur. So why did they make that distinction at all, oral and genital? You know, that's a great question. I don't actually know the answer to that. Um, I think that when they were first looking at uh, these two different types, they found that, um, you know, HSV2 was the one that they thought appeared more frequently um, as a genital infection. But subsequent studies have shown that in some communities, like a majority of genital herpes infections are actually associated with HSV1. So like there's, it's, it's just one of those kinds of, uh, like rules that like stuck in the consciousness, even though it turns out it's a lot messier than that. In some ways, it feels like the panic about herpes that really started in the very late seventies, early eighties, uh, was a reaction to the to the sexual revolution, and there was a, a lot of religious conservatives who pointed to herpes as God's punishment. And, and you write in the piece, here is an incurable, easy to spread, sexually transmitted infection that sometimes produced visible marks in the body and very rarely killed babies. And it did feel to some people like divine punishment for having sex. And more people are having sex in the sixties and seventies. The pill had come along, free love, the sexual revolution. And was it really social conservatives that 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 promoted this notion that that this common and until that moment no big deal skin condition was actually a, a scarlet letter, a curse, uh, a plague? Yeah, uh, that's that seems basically about right. Both social conservatives and also maybe people who don't necessarily identify as social conservatives, but just like we still have like deeply embedded discomfort with with sexuality and and uh you know the idea of having sex for fun with multiple people um you know i think the point that i make in one point that i make in the article is that you know during this time in american history between like world war ii and the mid or early to mid 80s people really weren't at very much risk from having sex because the bacterial sexually transmitted infections like chlamydia and gonorrhea and syphilis were all curable because we had penicillin by then we had antibiotics um, HIV had not yet come along. So there was this period in time when like your health risks from sex were actually like pretty minimal. And I think that people had this discomfort that they wanted to project onto something and herpes came along. And even though it is just a really minor and generally pretty trivial skin condition that lots and lots of people had, um, you know, it was an easy kind of scapegoat for these feelings of discomfort that people had about the sexual revolution. We should note that herpes can be a big deal for folks who are immunocompromised, whose immune systems are on the ropes. Also that there's a risk uh, of transmission from uh, mother to child during birth, but there are very few cases uh, of that and, and that can be controlled for. Right. And I think another factor here is that, um, 
back in the time in the 70s and 80s, the only kinds of cases of herpes that people were hearing about were really severe cases. And like in the grand scheme of things, most people don't have severe symptoms from herpes. And most people, right, because most people are immunocompromised. Um, you know, in most cases, there isn't transmission from mother to baby. But people were hearing almost exclusively about cases where people had extremely severe symptoms or had these kinds of complications that you just mentioned. So it created this impression in the public consciousness that herpes was a serious condition, when in fact, you know, the vast majority of people who have herpes don't even know that they have it because their symptoms are either uh, so minimal that they don't even like notice them or seek treatment for them, or maybe they don't even have symptoms at all. It's, I mean, it's very possible to, to have herpes and not have any symptoms of it. So um, I feel like there was this skewed idea of what a herpes diagnosis actually meant at that time. I learned something reading your piece that I hadn't known about and it was absolutely fascinating, that there is basically a conspiracy theory that big pharma, in order to sell drugs to treat herpes, created the panic, created the stigma, so then it could sell us these meds that are actually effective at minimizing someone's uh, the frequency of outbreaks and, and the likelihood that they might transmit the, the herpes virus onto a partner. Uh, and you you really dismantled that theory. Who, where did that come from? Well, I think uh, it's hard to say, again, where exactly the theory came from. In terms of a, like an online conspiracy, conspiracy theory, which has gotten like passed around on Reddit and just like on a bunch of different message boards and different sites, um, it came from this article that a, a researcher who works for a pharmaceutical company wrote in 2006, I believe. And um, this researcher said something along the lines of, you know, people didn't really, there were the marketing branch of our company said that there were no markets for this uh, herpes medication. So the markets had to be created, something like that. It turns out what he was really talking about was that the marketing branch of his uh, of his company, which is called Burroughs Welcome, that they didn't have very good research on like how common herpes was. And this was true. Like there really wasn't very good information about like how how common herpes was, which was another thing. The lack of that data, I think, made it really easy for this hysteria to kind of blow up because no one really knew how common it was. Um, but people on the Internet sort of like took this kind of somewhat uh, ambiguous statement that this uh, researcher uh, made and took it to mean that like this company had to invent a popular need for a herpes medication. When in fact, like this, this hysteria was already in basically full bloom by the time this medication came along. And, and you, you unpack the advertising that Burroughs Welcome mm -hmm. did to promote these, uh, this med, uh, valacyclovir or whatever its name was at the time. That's the, the, the mm -hmm. second generation. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the ads were addressing the stigma. They were talking about the stigma and trying to tamp down the hysteria by suggesting that there was a treatment that was effective, so no need to be hysterical about it, which, yeah. of course, the ads presumed the, you know, the pre-existence of the hysteria about herpes. They didn't create it. They didn't sow it. Right. The ads are like, honestly, seem pretty responsible by modern standards. Like they're they're really humanizing and like they present herpes patients as being just like normal people with normal interests um like in a way like they were clear i, I you know i don't want to minimize the fact that the this pharmaceutical company that made a cyclovir the the first drug that was approved to treat herpes like obviously i think they benefited from the stigma because one figure that i cite in the piece is that doc doctor's visits for herpes went up like tenfold in in between the 70s and the 80s like there was truly like a people were extremely worried about herpes no doubt that this pharmaceutical company benefited from that. But there is no evidence that I found that they 
did anything nefarious in order to create it. And it seems like at least in their public facing messaging, um, they were really trying to be quite a bit more responsible than a lot of the journalists, for instance, who were writing about herpes at that time. So just again, where did the hysteria come from? And, and, and for me, it's a little ironic because there was, and I was old enough, you know, I was 15 in 1980. I was there for this and paying attention. And I remember the hysteria about herpes and it just when HIV came along, it seemed like we had so overreacted to herpes that we didn't have a language to describe the actual risk of HIV. And in the way we had overreacted to herpes as a threat, it's not that we underreacted because there was a lot of AIDS stigma and, and panic, but it's almost like the boy who cried wolf. There was this screaming and yelling about herpes and then along comes HIV and we wanted to scream and yell about it and, and warn people about it. And the screaming and yelling was almost discredited uh, about HIV mm -hmm. because the screaming and yelling about HSV had been unwarranted and, and hysterical. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's a great point. Um, one thing that I heard from, I think, a couple of people I talked to who, you know, lived through that period and were working in some way tangentially related to like sexual health and herpes is this idea that herpes was kind of like a trial run or like a fire drill for HIV. Like basically all of the things that people said about herpes before they knew about HIV were like, they weren't true about herpes, but they were true about HIV. Like HIV was obviously like a very serious and deadly um, infection that, um, that like, frankly, people should have been more concerned about than they were. But for what, because herpes came along first, because people heard of herpes first, it was like, that is where all of the energy, this sort of like panic energy went to. And then I think you're right that like once HIV came along, there was a sense of like, well, huh, like, you know, what, what exactly, like, what is there, what should we believe, I guess? Like, is this uh, actually a serious infection or is it just something that's being like blown up um, the way that herpes was? Can I put you on the spot? Sure. Because this is the question I get most frequently about herpes. I've recently been diagnosed. I had an outbreak. I went to the doctor. Am I obligated to disclose to all future partners, casual or otherwise, that I have herpes? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I wrestle with how to answer that question because four out of five people who have herpes don't know they have herpes. Uh, people sometimes mm -hmm. get herpes from a partner and then disclose to that partner that they have herpes and it's the partner they got herpes from who didn't know they had herpes. And there's just no way of knowing where you got it, how long ago were you exposed. Some people don't have their first outbreak for years after exposure. Their initial outbreak was so not a big deal. They didn't even notice it. And then they have, an, they have a second outbreak years later and, and they can't you know, that people want to pin blame, but, but this is far afield from my question. And what, you know, I'm trying to put you on the spot that my callers often put me on. I have herpes. I know I have herpes. Am I obligated to disclose considering the stigma, the overreaction and the irrationality that I'm likely to encounter and likely to be rejected by people who themselves have herpes and just unlike me, don't know it. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, it's a tough question and I'm kind of going to punt and say, I think it's like something everyone needs to kind of figure out for themselves. I think ultimately it's probably a good thing to have more people disclosing because the more people disclose, the more that, that other people realize herpes is extremely common. And like, you, again, usually like not, it's not a serious condition for the vast majority of people who have it. Um, but I totally understand the like not wanting to face that stigma day in and day out or every time that you want to maybe like get sexual with someone. Um, so like, I think that's something for people to, to figure out on their own. I mean, in, in the same way that like, if you are a sexually active person, you need to 
just prepare, like be prepared for the likelihood that you will, for instance, get HPV at some point in your life. And honestly, good chance you'll get uh, herpes as well, either herpes one or herpes two. Um, like these are just very common infections. And if you are unprepared for the risk of, of contracting them, then like maybe you shouldn't be sexually active. I agree a thousand percent. The numbers of times I've gotten calls from someone who's angry that they were exposed to herpes, that somebody that they'd been with told them later, maybe it was a casual encounter that became something more serious, and then the person disclosed, and they're furious that the person didn't mm-hmm. disclose right away. And then the caller will add that, you know, they're open and poly and have multiple relationships and, and concurrent relationships and lots of one-night stands. It's like, well, then you should have been already comfortable with at least the idea of ex- being exposed to herpes and uh, HPV, because they're mm-hmm. so common and so easily transmitted. And so basically you're angry at the person who told you what others could have told you if they had known or didn't tell you and did know. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, at a certain point, if you have a certain number of sexual partners over the course of your life, it's basically inevitable that you are going to be exposed to herpes. Like that's just going to happen. So like you so, can so don't be a baby get comfortable with that and that yeah like just get comfortable with that fact that's just like basically a fact of a fact of life a fact of adult life you can have a rich and varied and exciting sex life as an adult or you can have no risk for exposure to herpes or hpv as an adult which means you can't have sex mhm i think it's like there's absolutely an unfair burden placed on the people who have been diagnosed with herpes because like you said Like we've been saying, lots of people have it and have not been diagnosed because they're asymptomatic or maybe they just weren't able to get to the doctor and then the the outbreak passed. But I think it's like, you know, so many of us are walking around with herpes and not and don't know it, or at least we don't have a diagnosis. Um, And, you know, those people are not expected to like disclose, oh, hey, just based on statistics, there's a good chance I have herpes. But if you do have the diagnosis, you're expected to disclose. And I think, yeah, that's not that's not fair. It's it's definitely not a fair situation. But your so advice I'll would be that. more people should disclose to destigmatize herpes and destigmatize disclosure. And you know, my feeling is that people, you know, and I, sometimes I feel like, is this really what I think, or is this just what I feel like I I have to say that everybody should disclose? No, I mean that's a great point. And not I put mean, no, and I, I really do think it's a personal, it's a pers- it's a personal, it's a personal decision. I think, and I don't want to like, I don't want to scold anyone for not disclosing because for all of the reasons that you cited. It's complicated. You don't always know where you got it from. You don't know when you got it. You, you opened your piece by pointing out the CDC doesn't recommend that people get screened for herpes. So the CDC is mm-hmm. basically saying you don't want to know. And, and they're saying you yeah. don't want to know because if you know, then you have to disclose. And then you're going to be punished by potential future partners because of this stigma that exists out of all proportion to the actual impact of the disease. Yeah, I think, you know, if we lived in a different world where everyone did get tested and everyone did know that they had herpes, the stigma would have to budge, you know, because like, it's just absurd to think that like, upwards of 50% of the population potentially in America is walking around with either herpes one or herpes two. I say walking around with, I mean, whatever, most of the time, it's like, it doesn't affect your life at all. There's viral DNA or RNA inside of your body. But like, that's basically it. It doesn't affect your life at all. But like, if if everyone who had herpes knew that they had herpes, I think the stigma would have to budge. But I totally understand that, like, it's not easy to, like, go through because of this really deeply ingrained stigma. It's not easy to go through this process of being diagnosed and, like, having to just sort of, like, deal with these cultural narratives that have been placed on you. So, I don't know. I don't well, have a, a perfect solution. It seems to me if the stigma could be 
basically constructed over a period of five or six years. Uh, decades later, we should be able to deconstruct this stigma with some effort. I think so. And I think you're uh, one of many people in the public eye who's doing that. So that's great. And I'm I'm glad that, that you and a lot of other sort of sex educators out there are really being very clear about the fact that herpes is, is not something that people need to be terrified of. L.V. Anderson, news editor at Grist and the author of How Herpes Became a Sexual Boogeyman, a terrific piece that everybody should go read at Slate. Thank you for jumping on the phone. I really appreciate it, L.V. Thanks so much, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old heterosexual male on the West Coast. My partner and I have been in a monogamous relationship for five years, living together for a little over two and a half years. My partner is in the wildlife forestry field and works as a field technician. It's hard to find work in that field, so who you know for references really matters. Before she got her current job, she worked for a private contractor. This was a little over three years ago. He is an older man in his 50s. They would regularly work in areas that required them to spend multiple nights out in the field together, usually camping every once in a while in a hotel, but never in a shared room. His home office, as I just said, is also located in his home. After about two months of working together, he told her while they were working in his home that he had developed romantic feelings for her. She told me about this, and it greatly upset me. She was adamant that she was not in any danger and that she could handle the situation. I trusted her, and they finished the field season out without any incident. She has remained friends with the man because she says he is, quote, an awesome friend and a very valuable work contact. Over the last year, they regularly go out and get drinks together alone to discuss work-related things. My partner knows how I feel about this and invites me along, but I have always declined this. I feel that the situation would just be uncomfortable and that I would feel more like a third wheel on a date. We recently took a much-needed weekend vacation. My partner left her phone open on the bed while showering, and I saw two texts come in from this man. I have never looked at any of my partner's phones and considered it a violation of privacy. Something felt off in the situation, though, and I justified the snooping to myself that the phone was unlocked, and it wasn't really snooping, but it was still a wrong thing to do, and I know that. In the text chain, she had told him that she was dreaming about him and was also sending him pictures, nothing dirty, of her on the trip. Just fun photos of her looking out over the ocean, that kind of thing. I hate that I looked at her phone, but I feel emotionally betrayed because she knows how I feel about this guy, and I don't really know how to handle the situation. My question is, did she cross a line and break my trust? Is telling your former boss that admitted having romantic feelings for you, that you were dreaming about him, emotionally cheating? Or am I being a distrustful asshole, and I should just nut up and finally meet this guy to see how they interact? The next time your girlfriend invites you out to drinks with this colleague of hers, for fuck's sake, go. Go have the drink. Go sit with them together. You are likely to discover, you are likely to realize as you sit and have a drink with them that the reality of their relationship, whatever it is, is not nearly as scary as what you sit at home imagining it to be when she's out having a drink with this guy. So take a deep breath. Go have a drink with your girlfriend and her colleague, her former boss, and, and see for yourself what that relationship is really like. It is possible 
that they have a kind of romantic friendship. It is possible that he is still attracted to her. It's likely that he is still attracted to her. And I worry, actually, about whether he can keep that in check because he's already demonstrated an inability to self-regulate around a, a workplace crush, that he confessed his crush at the beginning of a kind of extended time when they were going to be thrown together and he was in a position of power over her. That's fucked up. That was not the time for him to confess that crush. That really put your girlfriend on the spot. And he should have known that it was possible that in her position, she may have felt pressured or coerced. She didn't feel pressured or coerced. She told him she didn't reciprocate those feelings and they managed to salvage their working relationship. And this kind of romantic friendship that makes you uncomfortable. Obviously, there is a connection there. You went through all of their text messages. If she were fucking him, you would know. She sent him photos, but no nude selfies, no inappropriate photos, just photos and text messages that betrayed an emotional connection that made you feel worse and made you feel jealous because that emotional attention you feel, perhaps rightly, is yours and should be yours alone. And she's directing some of that at him. In addition to going out for a drink with her and him the next time they hang out and invite you to accompany them, or she invites you to accompany them, you need to ask her what she's doing here. Obviously, this guy had feelings for her. Is she giving him just enough sort of thinking of you and here's a picture of me looking wistfully out over the ocean at the beach photos to keep that romantic attraction on his side alive for her own purposes. Is she being the exploitative one now? Is she the one who's now behaving slightly inappropriately or is she giving him what he demands? Is he as a price for his mentorship or his guidance or his reference letters or his tips for jobs and the field that they're both in, is he demanding this kind of attention from her? Or does she feel pressured to, to come through with this kind of attention? You know, if I didn't have a boyfriend, the implication is maybe something would still be possible. Uh, hopefully she's not incentivizing him to have you killed. Anyway, she has some explaining to do. I think you have a right to be insecure. I think you have a right to ask her questions and ask for some reassurance. I don't think you have a right to be as angry as you sound. It is possible that he had a crush on her. It is possible that she intellectually or professionally has a little bit of a crush on him and values this relationship. And there is intimacy there and a friendship there that has supplanted whatever was there, at least on his side, at the start. She can reassure you of that if it's true. And you can confirm, I think, for yourself with your own eyes that that's the case if you just show the fuck up the next time you're invited to go have a drink. And if you go and have that drink and you get the sense that you're being played, well, then you may have to trust your gut. Also, you may have to apologize to your girlfriend for invading her privacy. Hey, Dan, I'm a guy from the Midwest. 44-year-old guy. have an open relationship. Been with my partner for six years. Recently got approached online by a guy wants to pay me money to be a companion or uh, for sex when he comes to town. Really out of a uh, sugar baby situation, I guess. I just want to know what your experience is with people like this. Is it for real? Is it a setup to rob me? What, what, what's the real intention? I've spoken with him a little bit. He seems legit, but 
you know, part of me wants to uh, step back from it also. My experience with this is non-existent as I've never done sex work. And this sounds more like sex work with a semi-regular client than it sounds like a sugar baby relationship. Sugar baby and sex worker are not interchangeable labels. A uh, sex worker sees clients. Sometimes a sex worker only sees a small handful of clients. Uh, a sugar baby is basically has their rent subsidized or they get a regular paycheck to be the sort of boyfriend or girlfriend-ish relationship in their sugar daddy, and it's almost always a daddy's life. That doesn't sound like what's on offer here. Somebody's coming to town and he found you on Instagram or however it was that he found you and he would like to buy sex from you when he is in the neighborhood. Could this be a setup? Uh, doesn't sound like one. Most prostitution stings because the police have too much time on their hands and they're out there busting people doing consensual sex work uh, involve women. They're usually not out there looking at dudes doing sex work, particularly 44-year-old dudes uh, attempting to do or thinking about doing sex work. There are people out there who have been entrapped by vice squads, uh, but you're not a target for that kind of entrapment. Could this person be a serial killer? Could this person be a liar or a fake? Could this person just want to have an extended negotiation about what might happen that they're jacking off to, basically getting you to do a kind of online digital sex work for free? All of those are risks. The question you need to ask yourself is, is this something that you are interested in doing? Is this kind of sex work something that you're interested in doing? Is it something that your partner would be okay with you doing? If the answer to those questions are yes, 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 and yes, well, maybe you could meet up with this person the next time they're in town and see what they're like, see how it feels. You know, we have these stereotypes about people who pay for sex in our heads, that they're all monsters who are trafficking people, or they're all so socially maladapted that they can't get sex any other way but paying for it. There are people out there who pay for sex for their own reasons. They pay for it because it's more convenient. They pay for it because they have a primary partner and they're, and they're in a long-term committed loving relationship that's sexless and they've addressed it, but there's been no change and they've just decided to step around that and this person is doing what they need to do to stay married and stay sane and paying for it is easier than asking for it, than, than talking somebody into it. And they like the cleanliness of paying for it, the old joke that you don't pay a sex worker for sex, you pay the sex worker to go away after sex. That may be what he's after. Or he could be an appalling creep. You could meet him and be afraid of him and never want to see him again. And then you block his numbers and you don't have to go through with it. You aren't obligated if indeed you're even interested. But I think on some level you are interested or you wouldn't have called. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at Rescues. I've been with my boyfriend for about three and a half years. And while we've had our ups and downs, I'm really satisfied with fulfilled in our relationship. In the past, we've had issues with trust, specifically that he's downloaded apps and created profiles and websites seeking other people. I came to find out about these on my own and was really hurt, not so much by the apps themselves, but instead the fact that he didn't tell me and that I found out on my own and that it happened more than once. When we talked about it, he expressed that these interactions with other women were had without the intention of ever meeting them, but rather out of loneliness and self-esteem issues. I did, in fact, see conversations that ended with him just saying, I can't meet with you, and there it was. For a bit of background, we live in the same city, but not together. 
because our schedules are so vastly different. He works afternoon shifts, usually until about 2.30 in the morning. When he gets home or wakes up, everyone he knows is either sleeping or working. He works with older guys who have families and are able to hang out after work. So from Monday to Friday, he's fairly isolated when he isn't there. My job prevents me from being able to text or call on the phone much when I am working, and 3 a.m. phone calls just aren't doable with my schedule, so we don't get to talk to each other much during the week. He also suffers from pretty low self-esteem and insecurities. He never feels good enough and has gone through some stuff as a kid and teens that has just recently broken his confidence. In the last six months, he's been going to therapy pretty regularly and seems to be in a better place, but I realized that maybe a more flexible relationship is what he needs. A few months ago, I told him I would be open to him using apps to meet women to talk to and maybe eventually down the road have a more of a discussion about what monogamish could look like for us. For me, I don't really care if he talks to other women. I understand why he seeks that validation. Rather, as I said, it was how I found out that hurt me most. When I asked him if he would like to do that, after setting up parameters of openness and honesty, he pretty strongly refused. I feel like he has had so little exposure to non-traditional styles of relationships and that he's saying no just because he thinks relationships can't be flexible. Or maybe he thinks that it would be a sign of weakness to agree to this because it means that I'm assuming that he might be unfaithful again. I'd really love some advice on how you think I can try to bring this up again and maybe some arguments I could give him to try and convince him. I really do think this would be best for him and for us. Thanks. You sound like a very articulate person doesn't sound like I need to arm you with arguments to take to the boyfriend. I'm sure that you made a very good and persuasive case for opening the relationship at some point down the road or what monogamish would look like in the context of your relationship, ethical non-monogamy or ethical non-monogamishamy in the context of your relationship. The only thing I thought might be a problem and something you might want to address directly is his vehemence around not wanting to open the relationship because you don't want to wake up in you know 10 years and determine that you're in a relationship with someone who wants it to be open for them and closed for their partner. And he's out there online flirting with other women. It sounds like he has his own apartment. He has lots of opportunity. He has a girlfriend who you know sees his side in everything. You've unpacked for us that he has low self-esteem, that he doesn't have – friends from work that he can hang out with afterwards, that he's lonely, that your schedules are such where that you can't be there for him all the time. And he's having all, he's initiating all these contacts with other women. And you say you've seen the chats or enough of them that end with him saying that he can't actually meet to feel secure, that he's not cheating on you, that he's out there flirting and people do that. And we've talked about that a lot on the show that sometimes people need that affirmation from you know, folks who aren't obligated to give it to them from folks who aren't their committed partners, whoever could of course tell you that they're attracted to you, of course, tell you you're attractive. Some people need to hear that from others to believe their partners and getting that affirmation from others can benefit the relationship. I'm concerned about the pace with which he gets that affirmation from others, the, the numbers of contacts that he initiates, you know, that flirting with somebody else to feel affirmed to address your insecurities, to, to feel better about your relationship so that you're likely to believe your partner when they tell you that you are attractive. It's kind of a base you tag every once in a while, something you seek, you know, rarely, a couple times a year, a few times a year. Maybe it's not something that you do nightly with a cast of thousands. And that seems to me like 
Not a red flag that he's cheated on you, but kind of a pinkish flag that he's likely to at some point, particularly when you couple it with how vehement he was about not wanting to even contemplate or discuss opening the relationship while he's online flirting with people all the time and maintaining dating profiles on what sounds like hookup apps. So I think you need to push him in this conversation. I think you need to drive a little harder. I'm sure you said all the right things, but in the same way that you unpacked for me all of the reasons why he might be doing this, I imagine that in what needs to be an argument with him, you were taking his side or seeing his side to such an extent that you weren't advocating for yourself. And you need to advocate for yourself in that argument. You need to take your own side in that argument, which means you need to figure out what it is that you want. Do you want an open relationship? Do you want a monogamous commitment that allows you to do online what he's doing online, flirt with others, play the at least hypothetical digital field, if not the in-person swapping spit field, uh, and get your jollies out a little bit. You're alone too. He can't be there with you for you all the time because your schedules don't align. Do you want what he's taken for himself too with his consent? And ultimately, do you want an open relationship or do you want a monogamous relationship that allows for some incidental contact with other partners? And if that's what you want, ask for it. And if it's not what he wants or if it's not what he wants for the both of you, which is sometimes the case, then you might need to end a relationship and find a partner who wants what you want. And even if they don't want exactly what you want, can at least discuss your wants and the compromises you'll have to make to be together calmly. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Definitely Lexi tweets, oh my goodness, listening to hashtag Savage Lovecast from the very first episode, and it's brutal. I've loved at fake Dan Savage for as long as I can remember, but oh my, how far we have come. I'm super thankful for having the Magnum Edition so I can go all the way back to day one. Well, you're a braver listener than I, Lexi, because there are a lot of things I'll listen to, a lot of things I'll do, but I will not listen to the very first episodes of the Savage Lovecast. But Magnum subscribers are welcome to. Way back then, 13 years ago, we were still working out the kinks, working out the bugs, creating the show. As we went, we're proud of the show now. We're proud of the shows then. But yeah, the seams were showing way back then. Thanks for being a listener. Lexi, thanks for being a Magnum subscriber. Phoebe Maltz, Bovie tweets, obsessed with the 31-year-old Savage Lovecast caller wondering if it's bad feminism to date her former as in a decade ago professor. How did we get from things can be consenting adults but still ugh to everything is ugh unless proven otherwise and even then probably still bad? Put another way, if this prof is dating students by dating a 31-year-old former student who graduated a decade ago, this is quite the long game, as in this is not a prof dating students. And finally, Raymond Sang tweeted out, podcast recommendation, Savage Lovecast. It's a relationship and sex advice podcast. I'll be honest, almost none of the material applies to me, but it's still good insight as to the spectrum of thought people apply to relationships and sexuality. Here's the thing about advice columns, advice shows. Most of it doesn't apply to you. And then every once in a while it does. And you remember some little bit of advice that you got a million years ago, reading Ann Landers or Xavier Hollander. Those are really a million years ago or listening to my show or reading Prudy or Carolyn hacks. Some little bit of wisdom will pop back into your head at just the right moment. I think it's one of the reasons people listen to shows like this and read advice columns not because it applies right now, but because it might apply 
someday, and then it'll come back to you. All right, if you want me to read one of your tweets about the Lovecast on a future episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. I'm calling in reference to episode 687, the woman who was saying that she wanted to like pre-propose to her partner. And I just wanted to say, my wife and I had the same situation. I was going to propose. She wanted to let me know in some way when she was ready. And um, maybe you already know this, but I did not know her ring size. And so when she was ready to be proposed to, she let me know her ring size. And then I knew it was open season. And I got to propose. Um, and it was awesome. And now we have two kids and we've been married for five years and life is grand. Hi, Dan. So I'm calling in response to the caller that uh, has this thing going on with a sexually oppressed guy who took a vow of celibacy. And uh, I think you, caller, are just really titillated with the idea that he will break his vow for you and you're so sexy and you have this like magical pussy that will make a person take this step and it is going to be about how hot you are just drop this bullshit now it's not he will do this eventually with someone and and then we go back to what dan said if you want to feel like a sexual goddess find a person who's sexually open and will role play those things with you hey dan if i was in a restaurant and i noticed a woman sitting there obviously having an orgasm would it be pervy of me to enjoy it because that's one of the things that makes me happiest to see women have orgasms. And if those, that couple was worried about anybody seeing them, they clearly wouldn't be doing it right out there in the open in the restaurant. So I'm just is it okay for me to perv on it and get off on it? And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Or even better, you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone and email us your question at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Using your phone means a better quality recording. We appreciate everyone who's using their phones to send us questions these days. And a big thank you to everyone who gifted the Savage Lovecast to their friends and relatives over the holidays this year. We really appreciate everyone who subscribes to The Magnum and everyone who gifts The Magnum. In addition to the Savage Lovecast, you're going to want to be listening to Blabbermouth, the Stranger's Week in Review podcast hosted by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Eli Sanders every Wednesday. Join me, Eli, Rich, Katie, Jasmine, Chase, Christopher, and others here at The Stranger for a look back at the horrors. Huff, my Dirty Little Porn Film Festival, is touring the country. A brand new program this year. Go to humpfilmfest.com to find out when Hump is coming to a city near you and to get tickets. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow LV Anderson on Twitter at LV underscore Anderson. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thank you so much for downloading, and I hope everybody has a wonderful day.